You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Wednesday, February 21st, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a conversation with David Brooks, New York Times columnist and political commentator about politics, populism, and the future of democracy in America. The conversation was moderated by Harvard Kennedy School Academic Dean Arkon Fung, the Winthrop Laughlin McCormick Professor of Citizenship and Self-Government. Let's listen in. Everyone to this afternoon's uh, ASH uh, series democracy seminar. Uh, to this afternoon, everyone will know our guest is David Brooks, uh, who is a author and political commentator since 2003. David's column has been featured regularly on the op-ed pages of the New York Times, and I know we all enjoy his uh, regular segment of Shields and Brooks on the News Hour. His biography includes many roles as a writer, including senior editor at the Weekly Standard, contributing editor at Newsweek and the Atlantic Monthly, and uh, he worked at the Wall Street Journal for nine years, just a few of his jobs. He's written many books, including Bobo's in Paradise, On Paradise a Drive, about the American middle class experience, and most recently, the road to character. I read somewhere that when David got his job at the Times, they were looking for a conservative writer after William Sapphire's retirement, and the job description was something like someone who is conservative that would not make their readers jump out the window or scream too much. I think you've mostly succeeded in that charge. David is one of the very few political writers in our currently very deeply divided moment who successfully addresses both liberal and conservative audiences. Uh, I think uh, very, very few on that list. I read your recent columns in the Times as trying to understand the crisis of democracy and society um, through conservative lenses in the best sense of the world, through moral and communitarian lenses, trying to understand and recover what in our traditions in our past led to the successes that we have had. While a lot of us are focusing on institutions, David has been consistently attentive to our public ethics, morals, life ways, and community. In a wonderful column in January, he invokes one of my favorite philosophers, John Stuart Mill, to remind us of, in a kind of Kennedy-esque way, what we owe to democracy rather than what democracy owes to us. David writes that his example, that of John Stuart Mill, cures us from the weakness of our age, the belief that we can achieve democracy on the cheap, the belief that all we have to do to fulfill our democratic duties is to be nice, vote occasionally, and have opinions. Mill showed that real citizenship is a life-transforming vocation. It involves, at its base, cultivating the ability to discern good from evil, developing the intellectual virtues required to separate the rigorous from the sloppy, living an adventurous life so that you are rooting yourself among and serving those who are completely unlike yourselves. This is a very important phrase for Kennedy School students. The demands of democracy are very clear. The elevation and transformation of your very self. If you are not transformed, you're just skating by. Please welcome David Mm -hmm. Brooks to the Ash Center. That was a better description than I'm about to give you of my own work, so thank you. (laughs) That really was exceptional, picking up what I hope to be getting across. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. I've had a chance to spend a few hours with students um, already, asking them questions, and now I'll talk, and then we can have a conversation. 
I know I'm at Harvard, so I'll be brief. Um, since a lot of you are Harvard affiliated, you didn't come here to hear me speak. You came here to hear yourself speak. <laughs> uh, so I'll, um, try to get out of the way of that. Uh, <laughs> um, I actually came from yesterday from my own alma mater. Uh, I was at the University of Chicago, uh, also interviewing students. Um, I and because I'm from Chicago, even probably more than Harvard, we're very bookish sort That's of people. True. When I was um, seven, I read a book called Paddington the Bear, and I decided <laughs> I wanted to become a writer. Uh, and I remember uh, in high school, I wanted to date a woman named Bernice, and she didn't want to date me. She dated another guy. And I remember thinking, what is she thinking? I write way better than that guy. <laughs> and, and, then, and so it wouldn't have worked out bad values. Um, and then um, when I was 18, uh, the admissions officers at Wesley and uh, Columbia and Brown decided I should go to the University of Chicago. Um, which, if you know the school, it's um, the famous thing about Chicago is the phrase is where fun goes to die, which is sort of obsolete. Uh, my favorite phrase is it's a Baptist school where atheist professors teach Jewish students St. Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> uh, so. And so I went there and indulged uh, the bookish life. I majored um, in history and celibacy at the same time. Um, and then um, I actually did this true. I managed to, my roommate was a boxer named the Kosher Killer. Uh, and, but we didn't <laughs> practice boxing. We just read books about boxing. Uh, and he made it to the Golden Gloves in Chicago, where in his first bout, his opponent realized uh, he was like flailing like this. And his opponent realized, well, one uppercut will end this fight which is what happened. <laughs> and, um, and so although I am uh, bookish and now I'm a columnist at the New York Times, a conservative columnist at the New York Times, which is a, a job I liken to being the chief rabbi at Mecca. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, there. Um, but, uh, but it does, um, I, I do think, and I, this is what I'm going to premise my remarks on, that you know, as you get older, some of the heady things that maybe got you through college become a little less important, uh, and you begin to uh, appreciate other aspects of your consciousness. And so as you know, for a lot of guys, especially as we get older, we get a little more feminine. I'm the only man in America who read that book, Eat, Pray, Love. Um, <laughs> by ba page 123, I was actually lactating, so it was kind of <laughs> <amazing>. um, <laughs> uh, But uh, the first point is, and this is a, a way of seeing the world, um, which is a cultural way of seeing the world. And, and the first assumption is the first part of our consciousness, the most part, important part, is not our reasoning brain, but our desiring heart. Uh, that uh, I, I read about a guy recently who, had a, who moved into a house with a bamboo stand by the driveway, and he um, hated bamboo. So he chopped it down, he took an axe and dug up the roots, he poured plants poison into the hole, and then he filled the hole with gravel, and then the, over the gravel he put cement. And two years later, a little green shoot. <laughs> and I think we all have that in ourselves, uh, which is we follow our desires, we follow our loves. We're like existential sharks. We just go forward all the time. And the, the, um, those loves propel us. They make us healthy. The famous Grant study uh, done of young men here found that those who had a, no deep love in their life uh, we're three times more likely to suffer from mental illness, 2.5 times more likely to suffer from dementia, and made 50% less money over the course of their career. The thing that correlated with military success with those guys was not physical courage or IQ or socioeconomic status. It was relationship with mother. And the guys who had a strong relationship with their moms could pour it into their men, and they rose to become colonels and majors. Mm -hmm. And those who didn't remained privates.
Uh, and so it's important to pay attention to that. And I think what we long for most is some sense of fusion, a fusion with a cause, uh, but mostly a fusion with other people. There's a great passage in this book called Captain Corelli's Mandolin that I hope some of you have read by Louis de Bernier. And it's about an old guy talking to his daughter uh, about his relationship with his late wife. And the old guy says, love itself is what is left over when being in love has burned away. And this is both an art and a fortunate accident. Your mother and I had it. We had roots that grew toward each other underground. And when all the pretty blossoms had fallen from our branches, we discovered we were one tree and not two. And that's just a beautiful encapsulation of what we long for, our desiring heart. The second thing that I think drives us is our soul. And now I'm not here to tell you whether God exists or not. That's really not my department. Uh, but I would ask you to believe that you have some piece of yourself which has no shape, size, or color, but is of infinite value and dignity. And that rich and successful people don't have more of this than poor or less successful people. Uh, and what this thing does is it makes you yearn for righteousness. Everybody I've ever met wants to lead a good life, wants to be part of something that is part of being good, being righteous. Uh, even criminals, when you meet them, they try to explain why what they did was actually good or at least excusable. And so that yearning for righteousness means that we all want to build uh, a good society. And I notice in the course some of the um, uh, people in this audience are not of traditional school age. Uh, and what I notice for people, uh, especially people of, of a certain age, their lives have had a sort of a two-mountain trajectory. They got out of school and there was one mountain which they thought was their mountain to climb. And it was often a career, building a family, building an ego, building an identity, how are you going to make your mark in the world? And then sometimes you achieve that mountain, sometimes you got knocked off, you achieved it and it wasn't satisfying, sometimes you got knocked off, sometimes something bad happened. And then sort of in midlife, you realize, no, that actually wasn't my mountain. And that there's a second challenge in front of you. And the second mountain is less about ego and more about surrendering, more about giving back, more spiritual. And I, I find this course in the life. And I think that is directed by this impulsive drive we have, not only to be good, but to, to do good in the world. And one of the things we do as part of our desiring hearts is to join with other people and our yearning souls is to try to do some good in the world. And one of the ways this manifests itself is in creating cultures, creating moral ecologies to make it easier for everybody around us to be good. And my, I tend to look at society, we can all tell stories of the last 50 years through a lot of different lenses, economic, intellectual. I tend to tell mine through the cultural lens because of the way I see people. And I, I tend to tell stories of progress. I forget who, there's a social theorist who said that history moves forward in what she called a ratchet, hatchet, pivot, ratchet uh, pattern. That you create a new culture or a new innovation and you move up and you achieve something and it works for a little while, then it stops working and you gotta take a hatchet to it and chop it up, but then you pivot and you find the new culture. That human ingenuity is such that we tend to move up, but we tend to have these bumpy periods of hatcheting. And I think we had a bumpy period of 1848 when a lot of countries went through a pretty bumpy period, 1905, 1968, and I think we're on one now. And it's easy to get pessimistic in these periods, but you gotta have faith in human ingenuity that will figure it out. And the story I would tell of this ratchet, hatchet, pivot, ratchet over the last 50 years is this one. That in, we had a generation where we had a culture between say 1932 and 1964, which faced a lot of big challenges and they've created, they've joined big organizations to solve them. The US Army, the federal government, labor movements, big corporations. And they had a very group mentality. 
And so if you grew up on the south side of Chicago where I went to school, or near where I went to school, you probably joined the same Nabisco plant that your father worked in. You probably joined the same union. You probably lived in the same neighborhood. If somebody asked you where you're from, you didn't say Chicago. You said, I'm from 59th and Pulaski because your neighborhood was super tight and super local. They didn't really have TV. They didn't have air conditioning. Everybody kept their door open in the summer, and so kids were running through each other's houses. Very tight communities and a lot of deference to organizations. If you went to the Catholic school, you were certainly deferential to the nuns. And if you worked for the, the political machine, you were deferential to your boss. There was a guy there named John Fairley who worked for Boss Daly in the machine. And for 20 years, Boss Daly sent him to the state legislature to be his rep. Uh, one of them in the state legislature. As a career reward at the end, he sent him Fairley to Congress, just so he could have two years in Washington, so he could say he was a congressman. And they asked Fairley, how are you going to vote? And he said, well, for 20 years I was in the state legislature. I voted the way Boss Daly told me to vote. And when I go to Washington, I'm going to vote the way Boss Daly told me to vote, because he was always right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a level of deference to authority that we probably <laughs> don't have anymore. <laughs> but they did have it. And that culture was a good culture in many ways. It had a really tight communities uh, and a lot of humility. Uh, but it had some obvious weaknesses. Uh, racism, sexism, anti-Semitism, emotional coldness. Uh, fathers are in particular were cold, couldn't express their love for their kids often. Uh, really boring food. <laughs> and, and lack of creativity. It's hard for me to see that we would have had an information age economy with the culture we had in the 1950s, because you'd have to have that innovation, that rebellious spirit. And so we shifted. And to me, this shift is best exemplified by those of you who remember uh, Super Bowl III in the NFL. There were two quarterbacks who faced off against each other in that game. One was Johnny Unitas, who was a very 50s guy, crew cut, high top shoes, very unglamorous. Uh, and then on the other side of the field was a guy named Joe Namath. Long hair, anti-institutionalist, a swinger. Joe Namath wrote a memoir, and the title was uh, I can't wait until tomorrow because I get better looking every day. <laughs> Johnny John Unitas, Mr. Reticent, would not have written that. <laughs> and so you had this cultural shift. Uh, what was pref preferred was to be young, not old, expressive, not reticent, casual, not formal, a rebel, not a conformist, individual, not institutional. And that was, it was about emancipation, about liberation, about free to be myself, from we're in this together to I'm free to be myself. And that, too, had a lot of good achievements, that culture. It gave us, really, the civil rights movement, feminism, the peace movement, the information age, age economy. And it did a lot that was uh, quite good and right for its time. In my view, people create cultures to solve the problems that are in front of them. And they do it sort of collectively. Uh, but we're s to me, we're running out, running out the string on that, I'm free to be myself. And so we're now suffering from a lot of effects of individualism. Uh, Jonathan Haidt of uh, NYU says, imagine a kid holding a maypole, a bunch of kids, and they're in a chain, and they've been running around the maypole, and the faster they go, the greater the pressure on their grips, and it finally just blows apart. That's sort of, to me, what's happening in society. We've got three overlapping social crises. The first is a crisis of social solidarity, a crisis of isolation. In 1980, 20% of Americans reported feeling lonely. Now twice as many do. Among Americans who are over 45, 35% are chronically lonely. A generation ago, only 8% of Americans lived alone. Now it's uh, 30%. There are more American homes with dogs than with children right now. Uh, in 1970, married couples entertained friends an average of 15 times a year. Now it's eight times a year. Uh, and so we have this 
um, isolation. And the isolation shows itself most painfully among those down the income scale, and it shows up as a rise in suicide rates since 1999. Suicide, as Durkheim told us, is just isolation, and a rise of opiate addiction, and opiate addiction is slow motion suicide. And so that's first, loneliness. The second is a different form of separation, which is an institutional crisis of alienation. Distrust of institutions, in that we're in this together phase of American history, 80% of Americans said government does the right thing most of the time. Now it's about 20, 20%. Uh, and distrust of each other. Um, it's, uh, if you ask people a generation ago, do you trust your neighbors? Uh, then most of the time uh, in, in a generation ago, 50, 60% say, yeah, I trust my neighbors. Now it's like 30% and among millennials it's 19%. And so because this is Harvard, I had lunch with Bob Putnam, Mr. Social Distrust himself. Um, <laughs> not that he exemplifies it, but he talks about it. Um, and he pointed out that the social trust in government fell in three episodes. Civil, when Johnson lied about the um, Vietnam when South Southerners lost faith in the government because of the civil rights movement and Watergate. And so it hit all cohorts all at once. J trust of each other did not happen that way. It happened generationally. So people who were raised in the 30s and 40s maintained high levels of trust, but each successive generation, each cohort has had su successively lowers of levels. And Putnam says it's not because social trust went down, it's because trustworthiness went down. It's a legitimate response to the neighborhoods in which you grew up in. And so that, that's, that's a genuine crisis. And then it's created, to me, the third of these three crises, which is a crisis of meaning. I think there's a spiritual crisis at the, at the root of a lot of these things, what I call the telos crisis. I notice that among my students, uh, they go to a struggling school in New Haven, uh, and, <laughs> uh, and uh, they call me... Uh, five years out of the job, out of, cam out of campus, and their voices change, they're down. And I've come to recognize this telos crisis. They've come out of school, they're high flyers, they're Yaleys, they have had a failure, a romantic breakup, something bad. And Nietzsche has a saying, he who has a why to live for can endure anyhow. Uh, he who has a why to live for can endure anyhow. And when you've got that, um, you can get through the hard parts. And if you don't have that, they really set you down. And so I think there's a, a, a loss of sense of both in the upper crust of Harvard Yaleys, but also across society, of a sense of leaning and a sense of purpose. They ask, in 2007, the Gallup organization asked people, um, uh, do you have a lot of purpose and meaning in your life? They asked people all around the world. Uh, the country which where has the highest level of purpose and meaning, where most people said, yeah, I have a lot of purpose and meaning in my life, was Liberia. And it wasn't because Liberia was peaceful in those days. It was because to survive, you had to really have strong commitments to each other. And that, that sense of solidarity created that sense of purpose and meaning. And we do not have that. And so we're basically, what happens when you leave people naked and alone? Well, they do what anybody does with our revolutionary history. They revert to tribe. And so to me, we have these three crises of meaning. And the people who think in a tribal mentality, the populists were there with a ready answer. They said, you go back and you return to retreat to the, the primal instinct that you have, which is find your tribe and find your belonging. And so uh, we see the rise of populism. And I spent uh, some time with um, Steve Bannon not long ago, and it was, it was really an enjoyable few hours, to be honest. 
Um, it was like sitting with Trotsky in 1905. He had a 100-year plan. Uh, Trump was one phase in the plan. He knew his intellectual forebears were. He knew his international allies were. There's this guy Farage, this guy Viktor Orban. We're all in the same movement. He brought Farage to Mississippi. And the day I saw him, he'd just come back with, from Mississippi with Farage. And he said the applause for Farage was the biggest of any applause he's ever heard. So all these Mississippi guys are going, yeah, Brexit. I mean, the self-consciousness of a movement. And so he, but he is a, he sees uh, diversity as an enemy and that cohesion as the way you actually form community. And so you see the rise of populism. And the, the populace understood what debate we were having. A lot of us in this last election thought we were still having the same left-right debate we had before, which was over the size of government. But he understood that it's sort of open-closed. The big debate is between those who feel the tailwinds of globalization and the meritocracy blowing at their back upward, and they want openness, and those who feel it's smashing in their face, and they want closeness. And Trump spoke to that. He understood uh, the decaying system. And Trump is not a great master builder, but he's pretty good at poking holes. Uh, in the last hatchet moment, there was a guy you'll recall named Abby Hoffman. <laughs> and Abby Hoffman was not a political genius, but he was good at political theater. And he was good at exposing the holes of the old order. And so to me, he's a lot of other things, but Donald Trump is the Abby Hoffman of our day. Uh, he's good <laughs> at picking every wound we have and sticking a red-hot poker into it. And that's part of the taking the old order. And so in 1989, liberalism seemed triumphant. I was in Europe. I covered, in the next five years, the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Soviet Union, the reunification of Germany, the Maastricht Treaty, Mandela coming out of prison, the end of apartheid, the Oslo peace process. It was all good news. It was all liberal democracy triumphant. Then at the end, there was one story which I barely paid attention to, which was the Yugoslav Civil War. And in retrospect, that was the most important thing that happened while I was there, because that led to what we've seen ever since. And that's tribalism, not just Trump, but spreading across the world. We see it in the form of negative polarization. If you watch people, do you uh, love your party? Not necessarily, but they really hate the other party. And so that's <laughs> what motivates people. And so the tribalists have a distinctive and powerful mentality. It's always us versus them. The core of life is conflict and combat. It's a warrior mentality. Politics is war. Uh, society is tribal. Ideas are combat. Friend-enemy distinctions. Build walls, erect barriers, zero-sum. Struggle for resources. It's a, it's a scarcity mentality. If you have an abundance mentality, there's room for all. We can all love each other. But scarcity mentality, scarce resources, we take our own. We take care of our own. Uh, and so they're on the rise. And so for the year after the Trump victory, what I saw was, and I think what we all saw, was the surging of illiberal forces. And then those of us who sort of supported liberal forces were sort of back on our heels, surprised, defensive, dispersed, uh, and, and demoralized. And what, what I've begun to notice over the last two or three months in particular is a lot of people coming out of their homes, a lot of people feeling politically homeless, but a lot of people coming out of their homes and saying, what can I do affirmatively? What and so everywhere I go, people are starting organizations, reviving new ones, uh, and what I see is people starting organizations in five or six buckets. And they respond to different interpretations of this crisis of cohesion we're in the middle of. The first bucket is a, six, uh, is a civic education bucket. 
People think we, we need to revive the ideas of democracy, why we're for all this, why John Stuart Mill matters. Uh, we've sort of taken our belief for granted so long we no longer can articulate what we believe. The second is a social capital bucket. How do we rebuild communities so people have a sense of belonging, they don't feel so naked? The third is a social mobility bucket. Part of the divide is clearly economic inequality. The fourth is a uh, depolarization movement, which is let's get reds and blues together to have a conversation so we can have some mutual respect. The sixth, the fifth is a um, sort of spiritual sermon movement. A lot of people thinking there is a spiritual crisis. How do we talk to people and give people moral vocabulary to understand what our individual and national purpose are? And then finally, I think there's an international component which is um, giving America a sense of what's our American purpose around the world. And so these organizations are just blooming everywhere. And it seems to me what our first job, and I'm trying to devote half my life to my normal column and half my life to this, is trying to bring them together. Uh, one of the things Putnam and I talked about at lunch was in the, um, the, the 1900 was a similar period to our own. A lot of economic turmoil, a lot of social turmoil, a lot of immigration and fights about immigration. And one of the things they did so far better than us is they formed big organizations. Yeah. Uh, and some of them were federal, the Food and Drug Administration, the National Forest Service, but a lot of them were civic. So the Boys and Girls Clubs are started then, the Boy Scouts are started then, the Social Gospel, the Temperance Movement, the NAACP, big organizations, a lot of which are still with us. And what they did first was they took a very individualistic philosophy, which in the 19th century was social Darwinism, and they created a much more collective philosophy. around. And they took all these different movements and they cohered them into one thing, which they call progressivism. And so taking all the different movements and cohering them into one thing is to me an important thing to do. The second thing to do, and a university has a special role to play, is to figure out what we're for. You've got these words, pluralism, civility, truth, but what how does that actually translate into a belief system that you can organize your life around? That strikes me as an important thing. And then finally, um, a better way to live. Why living in a democratic society is a way of life. Because I've been thinking about historical pivots, I paid a lot of attention to pivot moments. Uh, and uh, one of them is 1960s, so I paid attention to the Port Huron Statement. In 1962, a bunch of students led by Tom Hayden went up to Port Huron, Michigan, signed this document. A very accurate document with what would happen then, by the way, and very smart. Uh, they understood a couple things. First, they were in this cultural pivot, so the document is an expression of pure individualism. We're tired of conformity, we want to be individuals. So there's a philosophic thesis that goes through it. Secondly, they cohered around a, a discrete problem, which in those days was racism in the North. Third, they had a phrase that was the anchor, which for them was deliberative democracy. And ultimately, and I think this was very important, they understood that social change comes after personal transformation. So they gave people a way to transform their own lives. And there's a lot of personal values in there. And so th these seems to be models for what we can do in the future. And I'll just close for uh, just a few minutes by talking a little about personal transformation. Um, and. You know, if we're going to have the, it seems to me if I'm going to just this very simplistic sketch of cultural change, from we're in this together to I'm free to be myself, and the options before us seem to me either revert to tribe, or to me the other option is I commit to you, an ethos built on commitment. We still acknowledge c 
personal choice and individual choice, but we, it's a lot of what we do is make choices to renounce future choice. And that's an ethos that encourages people to bury themselves into long-term commitments. And for the students, most of you, and for the older people, most of you have already, most of us make four big commitments in the course of our lives. To a spouse and family, to a community, to a philosophy and faith, and to a vocation. And the fulfillment of our lives and the success of them depends on how well we choose and make those four commitments. And to me, a commitment is defined as falling in love with something and then building a structure of behavior around it for those moments when love falters. So Jews love their God, but they keep kosher just in case. <laughs> and so it begins with falling in love. Uh, I, I love the story of I heard from a hairdresser in Houston. Uh, he works at a place called Etude de Paris. And a woman came into a salon, uh, and she was a pianist uh, who was about to move to San Francisco to marry her fiancé. And she figures, I'll get my hair done before I go. So she walks in there. She sees the, the proprietor of the salon and goes back to the room, puts on her gown, uh, and calls her mom and says, I've just seen the man I'm actually going to marry. <laughs> and she goes out, gets her hair cut, and then um, gets in the chair, and the guy's name is David. And he's cutting her hair, and he says, so, you know, what's your story? And they have small talk, and she finally says, well, you know, I'm a pianist, concert pianist. I'm about to move to San Francisco to be with my fiancé, but I won't do it if you'll marry me. <laughs> <laughs> and so as David tells the story, I looked down at my scissors, and I never felt more free than I did at that instant. And he said, it's a deal. <laughs> and um, they've been married 17 years. That's a true story, true story. Um, and so that's just emphasized it starts with love. Now, most of us don't fall in love quite that quickly, but uh, you've got to fall in love with whether it's a spouse or whether it's a career, whether it's a community, whether it's a faith or a set of ideas. Uh, it, it starts with falling in love and then building that structure. And what our commitments give us, first of all, they give us our identity. Han Arendt said that without our commitments, our, we would just be blown apart by the fickleness of our heart. They give us our sense of purpose. Uh, they give us a higher definition of freedom. We have a definition from our old culture that freedom means absence of restraint. But there's another definition of freedom, which is about freedom of capacity. To have the freedom to play piano, you've got to tie yourself down and actually practice. It's a different definition of freedom. And I think what they do is they give us our sense of moral character. It's through our commitments that we build our character. And so when I was a young man, my, my first son was born. We were living in Belgium. And he had a super low APGAR score. Uh, and when you have that, they whisk the kid away. And uh, when that happened, I remember thinking, you know, they, it's just gone to the intensive care unit. And I remember thinking, suppose he only lives 30 minutes would that be worth a lifetime of grief for his mother and I? And if you had asked me that beforehand, I would think, obviously not. I mean, a, a, unit, a life form that doesn't even know of his own existence, why would 30 minutes of that be worth a lifetime of grief? But for those of you who are parents, I think the answer is obvious. Of course it would be worth it. There's something of infinite dignity about the life of your child that that's, you've been thrust into a commitment you couldn't even imagine before it happens. And so when that happens, I think what you do that love that suddenly erupts forces you to, or compels you is a better word, to like start to make sacrifices or make promises, which is part of commitment making. I want to be there for the kid. And then you say, well, maybe I'd rather I'd go out for a run, but I've got to push the kid in the baby stroller. And you get in the habit of being more self-sacrificial than you would by otherwise. And once the habit is engraved, then a 
pattern of characters engraved, and then you become a slightly better person through the surrender you have to make to the commitment. And that good character, you know, comes from the far side of unselfish service, not on this side. And so to me, getting us out of the isolated individualistic mode uh, and committing both locally and nationally strikes me as an ethos to encourage. Uh, and a lot of my life and career has been a, a revolution against individualism, which is great, but unless taken to extreme. And so the final um, commitment that I think is the hardest for a lot of us right now is commitment to nation. We have a lot of healthy communities. We have a lot of great healthy cities. If you go to Greenville, South Carolina, Fresno, a lot of cities in surprising places are doing great. Our problems are at the national level. And what has been very interesting to me, especially talking to the students and I, at lunch with uh, Putnam's class, and I did this at Chicago and I did it earlier with Yale, I said, I'm going to tell you my national story, what I think of as America, the story I was raised in. And it's an Exodus story. People left oppression. They crossed the wilderness. They came to the promised land. And they tried to build the promise of this land here. And the pilgrims told that story, John Winthrop. The founders told that story. They wanted to put Moses on the great seal of the United States. Every immigrant group that came here told a version of that story. In the civil rights movement, uh, Martin Luther King talked more about Exodus than about the New Testament. And what I find almost universally when I tell that story to people under 30, they're like, nah. I don't really buy that story uh, because this is, seems so far from the promised land and that the, not even a promise that we could fulfill, but the promise is very stained. And that's the consciousness that they have. And I wish I, they would buy my story, but they don't buy my story. And so creating a new national story seems to me a fundamental challenge. We've sort of broken down to a bunch of different stories. There's the high-tech Silicon Valley story, which is we're all citizens in a global community, and we love disruption. And disruption is really great if you went to Stanford. Uh, <laughs> and then there's the multicultural story. We're all members of our own group, and we've all been subject to oppression in, in one way or another. There's um, the individualist story, which we're lone rangers out on the range, and we're rugged individualists. And then there's the story Donald Trump told, which was uh, the good-hearted native people of America are being threatened by outsiders. And the enemy is that the elites are outside the country which weirdly is characteristically the Russian story. That's the story Russians tell themselves, not our story. Um, I don't know if that was part of the uh, bot thing. <laughs> uh, but it seems to me commitment to nation is the hardest, hardest thing we have to solve. And so I've tried to just tell you the story of these cultural phases since I see things culturally. Uh, and end with a, what I think is a, a, a sort of an upbeat conclusion, which is that we're seeing so much of people rallying to action. And I, you see it everywhere. And that human ingenuity in the history is that people figure stuff out. And the writers who say it's, oh, the end of, the decline of, people like us, we're always wrong. So you can take that to heart. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. really phenomenal. I think it raises a huge number of questions and responses uh, from everyone in the room. So uh, Melissa has a microphone, and so if people have questions or comments, and as well. So we got a couple mics. So raise your hand if you'd like to stand? offer. Yeah, maybe stand. I think that would be better. 
Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Um, so my friend Alyssa and I, we are from the Ed School. We actually just got out of a three-hour lecture um, for our moral development class on love and how to teach love. Um, so it really struck me that this was a huge theme of your talk this evening. So my question to you, um, as a Harvard student, obviously I do everything for a grade. <laughs> um, our um, conversation on love is going to be continuing next week, and I would love to get your definition of love and your opinion on how do you teach it to millennials and the iGen who have grown up in this culture of isolation, alienation, and depth of meaning? Yeah. Uh, well, the first thing, when I, go to, when I meet with college presidents, I always say, listen, the most important um, uh, decision any of your students are going to make is who to marry. So every course at this institution should be about the marriage decision, should be the literature of marriage, <laughs> the psychology of marriage, the neuroscience of marriage. Just get that one right. Um, and they never do. They never do. Um, uh, I guess I would say a few things. One, I do think it is important to talk about that as, as like, as how are relationships happening? How does intimacy happen? I mean, intimacy sort of, except for the David story, it usually starts with a glance. And then there is a process of vulnerability and self-disclosure. And then there's a crisis, and then there's appraisal, and then you make the decision, is this Am I ready for a commitment? Is this person ready for the commitment? And so there's the, a whole process of intimacy that we can be very unconscious of unless you actually talk about it and think about it. Uh, the second thing I would say is that every relation, we have a tendency, we're sort of emotionally amputated in our society not to want to talk about it. And so, you know, and I'm as guilty as anybody. I mean, I, I wrote a book about emotion called The Social Animal, and when I wrote it, my friend said, you know, you writing a book about emotions like Gandhi writing about gluttony. <laughs> but, but the elemental fact of it, and I covered education reform from a nation at risk to the present, and we had all these structural reforms, big schools, small schools, choice, vouchers, but the thing you learn is the elemental fact of education is the love between a teacher and a parent and a student. And if that love isn't there, the motivation isn't there, and everything else isn't there. And so talking in those ways in upfront manner is important. And then the final thing I'd say, I've got a lot to talk about in love, um, but um, is to recognize that some loves are higher than others. And that being conscious of how you rank your loves is super important. And so to me, like we all love a lot of things, but we all know some loves are deeper. If, if you lied for money, then you're putting your love of money above your love of honesty. And we know that's wrong. And if somebody tells you a, a story at, and then you blab it at a dinner party, you're putting your love of popularity above your love of friendship. And we know that's wrong. We all have an instinctive and probably the same sense of what loves are higher. And so elevating the aspiration so people know what are the highest loves. And so I would say there's mat material loves. We like good food. That's good. Then there's ego and comparative love. We want to be success, win some status. Uh, and then I'd say there's um, a love of knowledge. Uh, and then I'd say there's a love of justice. And then there's a love of goodness. As I'm saying this, I'm, I realize I'm ripping off Plato. Because <laughs> <laughs> Plato, I'll, I'll end with this. He said, if you want to educate a child, it's an education tract, first present them with a beautiful face. And they'll see, oh, a beautiful face. But then when they acknowledge the beauty of a physical face, they'll see, oh, there's even higher beauty, which is the beauty of a beautiful personality. And then when they see a higher, per a beautiful personal personality, they'll <coughs> realize, oh, there's an even higher beauty, the beauty of a good society. 
And then when they see that beauty, they'll realize, oh, there's even higher beauty, which is truth. And that beauty will remind them of an even higher beauty, which is the transcendent goodness, and Plato said, from which nothing can be added and nothing can be taken away, which is either God or whatever you want to call it. And so that was an educational track and education in the beauties. And to me, to be able to talk that way, uh, you have to start where I started, which was where Augustine started and many started, that our, our students are primarily heart-driven, desiring creatures, not brains on a stick. That was too long an answer, I probably. That was great. Thank you. But next. Yeah, over here. Hi, uh, Dan Henrahan, a student at the Kennedy School. Um, Myself and a lot of the other students from overseas often make that observation about how strong that individualist narrative is in America and how it underpins so much um, and that story of the rugged individualist who's pulled themselves up by the bootstraps actually makes it so much harder to build the community that you're talking about um, and how people tend to view success as being an individual rather than a collective effort. Why do you think that narrative has become so strong, even though like a lot of the, or I'd argue, all the major successes of America have been built by Americans working together yeah. in an institution? Why is that so strong? And what can be done to sort of like undermine that story? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would say first it's strong partly by, partly by philosophy. I mean, we've had a very strong pragmatic utilitarian philosophy, which is about individuals, uh, which goes through the centuries, which is an individual making choices, rational choices. I'm writing about um, Stephen Picker, Stephen Picker's book, and he's a friend, and he's actually a cousin of mine. Uh, I learned from a DNA test, um, but, um, and I'm a big admirer. But he has a very individual, uh, rational, that individual reason is really the, the driving force of progress. I think he's sort of wrong about that, but, but it's, it's, it's a, got, Lord knows, a long and honored tradition. Secondly, we've had a belief system and a culture that created this. I mean, you look at the Western, it's the lone gunslinger going into town, rescuing the town, and then leaving. The best Western, by the way, is a, a, a movie, a John Ford movie called My Darling Clementine with Henry Fonda. And it's really about he comes into the town, and you think it's going to be the lone gunslinger, but what happens at the town is a school teacher arrives, a theater arrives, a barber arrives. It's about the creation of community. And then everyone figures there's more money in the next town, so they all leave. But, but it's still the, <laughs> that really is the actual history of America, of us creating communities, then moving on for more opportunity. Uh, and so then there's that ethos. And then the individualism was just reinforced uh, by a culture of autonomy or a culture of narcissism, whatever you want to call it. If you ask people around the world, there's a thing called the narcissism test. And they say, I'm going to get, read you a bunch of statements. Do they apply to you? Uh, and there are statements like, um, uh, I find it easy to manipulate people because I'm so extraordinary. <laughs> or uh, somebody should write a biography about me. Or I love to look at my body. And we are number one in the world in the narcissism. <laughs> and narcissism scores have gone up 30% in the last 20 years. Uh, and so that's just a, a very individualistic culture. Now, how to combat it, I think we're we're beginning to turn that corner. Uh, but, and like what Putnam does and hopefully what I do and what a lot of people do is emphasize community and surrender of self. Uh, but th there's a long climb back and it, it's just, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, I, I'm sure the students here are the same with my students at Yale. If you ask them, what are you doing across spring break? It's like, you know, I'm unicycling across Thailand while reading to lepers. 
uh, <laughs> community service, and I'm hoping that will instill a more communal aspect. And I've been asking students, you know, who do you have faith in? Right. Which change agents do you have faith in? And most of the answers is local activists. It's always local, <laughs> and it's not so much intellectuals or politicians, but it's people who are credible on the ground and doing communal action. Teachers get a lot of it, but it's that kind of communal action. I'm impressed you could do a three-hour lecture and then another one. <laughs> uh, yes, right here. Um, thank you very much. And I want to thank you for your recent column about the amphibians, which um, I thought was incredibly insightful and hopeful. It was a really hopeful column. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and also whether the amphibians see their potential as change yeah. agents, whether yeah. you heard self-awareness about that bridging yeah. capacity. Yeah. So I wrote a column about frogs. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, amphibians was the word I gave. In this tour of these campuses, I met so many students who had very interesting backgrounds, like they were half Costa Rican, half French, or they were from a small town. Uh, they were uh, sort of Muslim, lesbian, Republicans. Like they were crossing all these categories. And very typically, they were the most liberal person in their town in Kansas. And then they come to Harvard, they find they're the most conservative person. Uh, <laughs> or they come from mixed race uh, backgrounds. Or f through some cultural change, they've really had two radically different stems in their background, either by biology or by choice because they've lived in one place and have then lived in a very different place. And so it was very striking to meet all these people who had these weird backgrounds. Uh, and when I spoke to them, a lot of them first expressed it as a, a problem. Mm. Where am I from? When people ask me who I am, what do I tell them? Who am I? And a lot of them expressed, um, like, if you're half Hispanic, half white, or half Hispanic, half African American, it's like you're sort of a little out of place in both. And so there were a lot of tensions they were expressing. But as they began to speak, I saw only strength. First, I saw the, the process of dealing with those tensions, which is a bit like that immigrant process of coming to a new land where you are just accelerated by force of pressure. But second, in Putnam has this concept there are two kinds of capital. There's bonding capital, which we build deep into our communities, and then there's bridging capital, my community and another. These, two, these kids were... were um, were heavily anchored in two different communities. So they were like living examples of bridging capital. And then finally, they were living examples of pluralism. And to me, pluralism is the great thing to fight for. The belief that truth is plural, that uh, it's often a, uh, com most big issues are competitions between partial truths. And they lived out pluralism in their very being. And so that is the future of the country. That is what the f country is going to look like. And that, to me, is, is a, 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 a very hopeful sign of centering the country and then just people who are professionals at handling diversity because they have diversity within themselves. Um, and, you know, if you come to places like this, you do just get uplifted. But that was a really strong. I just wish they knew it. <laughs> a lot of the meetings have, yeah, a lot of my, a lot of my, like it, meeting with Yale, I was with about 60 students from about 30 different countries, and it was like, we've lost faith in institutions, we've lived through the financial crisis, Iraq, the last election, we just don't have a lot of faith. And the other guy who was my age and I, we were saying, like, 
know that, no, we're, this country actually generally does good things. And they were like, yeah, I know we need institutions. I just haven't seen any that really work. <laughs> and I get that. If, if you were born in, you know, 1990 and the last 25 years of you've been in your lived experience, get that. Um, and we're not going to run the country. They will. But I, I think they will. Uh, you do see these oceans of, of talent there. The other thing is life is so competitive. They're all more impressive than any of us were. <laughs> so, and more, you know, they're going to have the biggest midlife crisis in human history in 10 years. But, <laughs> Very good. Um, yeah, over here and then Miles. Hi. If uh, you could identify yourself. Sure. Yeah. Isaac Harvey Wolf. Uh, I'm between college and grad school. A uh, big fan of your PBS NewsHour. I've been watching it since I was a kid. Um, you'd mentioned uh, the kids running through the neighborhood before going on to join their parents at the, at the Nabisco plant. And I'm wondering um, how you feel about the role for play and fun in society for all ages and how that could potentially help us. Yeah. Uh, I wish I, there's a book, great book called Homo Ludens about who argued, this was written about in the 40s or 50s. If somebody knows the author, I'm now blanking on it. Um, but Hetzinger. It, yeah, Hetzinger. Hetzinger, yes. I'm glad I didn't try to pronounce that. Um, yeah, so he, um, it, it is argued that play is one of the elemental ways we form ourselves. And, you know, I could riff on how I think that happens, but I will say um, that it, it is, well, I'm going to do two, two stories that lead to mind from social scientists. The first is a story I just read in a new book called The Culture Code, and they gave business school students, uh, they gave these fuzzy blocks to business school students and to kindergartners. And <laughs> the idea was to stack, they had to stack them to, like, say, a four-foot level. <laughs> And so the kindergartners could all do it in like four minutes. The business school students tried for 10 or 15 and failed. <laughs> and the difference was the business school students, first they spent a lot of time figuring out how are we going to make decisions about how we're going to do this, <laughs> establishing the hierarchy, and then trying to figure out the theory of the thing. What will work? And they did that theoretically before they did the stacking. The kindergartners just started stacking stuff. And when it would fall, they'd say, oh, that doesn't work, and we'll try something new. <laughs> so it's just iteration. And that's sort of unselfconscious play. Uh, and that, so I do think that that thing that comes from most of what we're trying to do in life is forget about who we are. And play is the definition of flow and forgetting about who we are. And then this will be a little more controversial, but uh, just the way play forms us. And I'm, here, I'm not, I'm not the expert here. There's a woman named Deborah Tannen who writes about conversation. And one of her observations is that if you watch play on a playground, for, say, fourth or fifth graders. The boys are out in large groups with a clear leader. The girls are in small groups with a, um, a shared conversation. And it's dangerous to make gender generalizations on a college campus these days, but <laughs> this is Deborah Tannen. If you don't like it, <laughs> ban her. Um, <laughs> uh, but, and so her conclusion from this is that there's a conversational style that develops where males are hierarchical in their conversational styles. and of some women grow up where intimacy is the core currency. And so when you, um, you a when a guy asks for directions, he doesn't want to do it because he's announcing his lower status. And that when a woman comes home with a problem, she wants the gift of understanding, and he wants the gift of showing I'm the master of this situation. <laughs> and it's just different gifts. So I think she, her argument is this all derives from play. Okay, I'm pre-associated. That's what it was like. Miles. David, I want to, first of all, I want to say I've been uh, a big fan of your uh, writing. I think it's constantly 
creative and interesting and rooted in culture, and I think that's great. And I think over the last year, it has become incredibly courageous. So I really want to thank you about it. But I've wanted to challenge you on one point for like years. So that would be great. <laughs> it was fabulous to have a chance. In your whole sort of description about the, the phases and how we've gotten to where we were, the idea of inequality right. was absent. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned it once, sort right. of in passing. But it feels to me like it is such a central core of what has happened to us. Yeah. So my question to you is, you know, how can, is it possible for us to create the kind of community and the kind of selflessness and the kind of sense of other right. uh, in, in a period of rampant inequality and what should we do about it? How can we confront it directly? It seems to me that it is core and to not make it central to the analysis does it a disservice. Yeah. Well, it is, I mean, a lot of people tell that story and a lot of economists tell it better than I. I don't deny it. Uh, and I have written about it a lot. I did more about five years ago because I felt I had, I said what I had to say on it. But, um, so it is part of the core development of the scarcity mentality for people. That they're, it's not so much that they're bothered by inequality. I think they are bothered by it. But they are, um, they just feel their, their incomes are stagnant or worse and their kids' incomes are even worse. And the, basically playing by the rules doesn't work. You know, after um, I spent 16 columns saying, don't worry, Donald Trump will not win the Republican nomination, uh, I spent the next year and a half looking for his voters. They were not necessarily the poor, but they had a scarcity mentality, a sense that the economy was rigged and screwed, and they were getting screwed. Uh, and um, that sense that those other people know nothing about us. And that's a product of income inequality and this problem of social inequality both. And obviously income inequality feeds it. My answer to my response would be to go back to my roots. Um, so what am I? I'm not a standard conservative these days. I'm not a liberal. My two heroes are Edmund Burke and Alexander Hamilton. And Burke taught us uh, epistemological modesty, be modest about what you can know, uh, and, uh, and so proceed do change constantly but incrementally. And then Hamilton taught us about social mobility. And he really created a political system that um, uh, took poor, it was designed to take poor boys and girls like him and turn them into capitalists. And so he created a lot of things, uh, the National Bank obviously, some infrastructure programs, a lot of national universities, national research projects. His impulse was taken up by the Whig Party, Henry Clay, William Pitt Fenton, the early Republican Party, Abraham Lincoln, it went up to Teddy Roosevelt, and then it just died. And so to me, there, if I were, if a political party was alive today, there'd be a, I'd be a Whig. There'd be like six of us. But if you're, a, <laughs> if you're a Whig, you basically believe in massive investments in human capital. Uh, and so to me, that's the answer to inequality. And human capital is like diet. You've got to do it every day at every stage of life, starting from nurse-family partnerships, early childhood education, more education, mentorship programs, charter schools, whatever it takes, then up through college, community college, uh, adult training, uh, anything you can think of that's human capital intensive, that's what I'm for. And to me, that's the way to, to create mobility, and mobility is a, a bit of our answer to inequality. Um, but So I don't, I don't mean to sideline it. I guess I do take a cultural take without trying to deny that the inequality is central as well. Uh, I'll ask a, a question that's a selfish question that kind of follows a little bit along the, the Hugsy question is, given the 
the decline of the legitimacy of many, many large institutions, including educational institutions. And, and part of our sociological role and educational role is to train and prepare people to occupy these institutions and these large organizations and these roles, which they no longer do. Right. And so what should be the, con they, I mean, it, the very name of the John F. Kennedy School of Government is premised on this idea that there is a, uh, are, there are a large segment of honorable public servants working for the public good, and, and you ought to be one of them. But yeah. the number of people that I could name that are widely regarded in that role right now are probably yeah. you know, less than five. Yeah. So we're in some trouble on the legitimacy right. front. Right. So what should the role of higher education institutions be in training and teaching students to form the kind of bridges and commitments that you're talking yeah. about? Well, the first thing um, is to acknowledge honestly that for most of American history, to have a Harvard or Yale attached to your name was a plus. Now it could be a minus. Yes. And so just to acknowledge that fact. And then the second question I would ask is, we used to have an establishment in the 50s, which was all white males from, the, from the, either the Mayflower or the boat after that. And they had higher legitimacy than our much more diverse and more fairly chosen elite. Uh, and it's not clear that we've made the meritocracy so much more fair and included so much more talent. It's frankly not clear to me that government is working better than it did or that finance is working better or that the media is working better. So that to me is an amazing paradox. <laughs> and so why might that be? Well, because they, through no fault or benefit of their own, they had World War II to fight with other people and they actually knew the country better. And I think you, you alluded to this, that Getting to know the country well is important. And then the final thing I, I just say is um, the importance of politics. It's very hard to get a lot of people interested in politics because they just don't believe it. They think it's corrupt. It's just not a system they want to devote their lives to. Uh, and so what I say, would say is, first of all, not caring about politi politics is the luxury you have if you live in a privileged society. <laughs> if you live in a society where you get shot in the back of the head or if you play a bribe every few minutes, you really have to care about politics. And the second thing I'd say is that there's no other realm in which you could do so much good as in politics. The people I know who've served in government, that's the crowded hour of their life. That's what they talk about. Uh, and I have tons of friends who had administration jobs high and low, and they just when they tell stories, they just tell about that. And a friend of mine, she says, um, she served in the Obama administration, and she works here, so you can figure that out. Um, <laughs> she said, um, each um, individual day sucks, but the whole experience was tremendously rewarding. <laughs> and that's true. That, that's, it. that's a good observation. And then the final thing I'd say is that politics is a craft. It's like passing legislation is a craft. Uh, and... Um, and you've got to learn and respect the craft of it. And it's not something you can learn quickly. There was a guy I knew named Dick Darman, who was budget director under the first President Bush. And uh, we had lunch near his, when, close to when he died, and he, he, was whole, he was CEO of two different big companies at that same time. And he said, you know, each individual day in government was more consequential than any day I have now. Uh, and, but he told me this story. He, he loved stories about the craft of government. And one of the stories he told me was about this guy named Mel Laird, who was Secretary of Defense, I think, under Nixon. And Mel Laird had no hair, zero hair. 
Uh, and yet there was a barber in the White House, and every week he made an appointment with a White House barber. <laughs> so why did he do this? Because in the Pentagon, they have a, a, the secretary's schedule goes out across the building. And he wanted to say every Wednesday, 3 p.m., Laird to White House. So they would think he was meeting with the president. <laughs> and that was part of playing the game. And that's sort of informal knowledge, but that's how you get stuff done. And it is a game. Like if you watch that movie Lincoln, that was about how to get stuff done. And that was a celebration of politics. And if you live in a diverse society, you can or organize it through force or through politics. It's one of the two. So I, that's celebration of, of politics. Um, uh, the final thing is, uh, among the students I met today, th they were you know, Kennedy people, so they believed in politics. They believed in local politics, which is important, but they did not believe in national yes. politics, and that's right. a challenge. Yeah. The question is, uh, yeah, go ahead. Hi, thank you for coming. Um, my name is Maria Sarate. I'm an applicant to the Kennedy School, and <laughs> I'm in town for a bit. Um, I just got in from Lima. I'm a Peace Corps volunteer serving with a feminist NGO there, so I've seen politics on the local level. And I just wanted to say, like, as a student who's about to embark on this career, trying to unite communities, trying to change the world, what advice do you have for someone like me? <laughs> oh, geez. Jeez. Um, That's the toughest question. Yeah. <laughs> First thing I'd say is um, don't follow your passion. You know, people don't have a passion. Follow your interest. Everything's about motivation. And so uh, I'm going to repeat some advice that a, f a friend of mine named Fred Swanaker gave me. Uh, and he then wrote it up on Medium, if you care. Uh, and Fred uh, is from Africa. He was, grew up all over Africa. Uh, and he, I think, went to Wesleyan. And then he came back. And he realized the problem. First question he asked, what is, the, um, what is the central challenge of my time? And for him, he decided it's leadership in Africa. That's my central challenge. I think it's a useful question to ask Elon Musk when he was at Penn. He said, what's the central challenge of my time? And he said, well, I can think of three. The internet, clean energy, and space exploration. So he created PayPal, Tesla, and SpaceX. Pretty good, pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> but so th that strikes me as useful. So Fred's um, lesson was, first of all, when you choose your, you should, you're going to be called to service by a need by a felt need in society. Uh, Viktor Frankl said, and no offense to John F. Kennedy, uh, well, no, Kennedy ripped us off, sorry. Usually we say, Where's, what do I find inside for me to do? What's, what, what do I want from life? And Viktor Frankl was a psychologist in Austria. He was sent to a concentration camp, and he realized, hey, this, that was the wrong question, because going to Auschwitz had nothing to do with what I wanted from life. Fate just throws you. And he said, the real question is, what is life asking me to do? Mm -hmm. What are the circumstances I'm in asking me to do? Um, and so he said, well, I'm, in, I'm a psychologist in Auschwitz. I should study pain. And so he did a study on why some people survived um, in Auschwitz years, and some died within a month. And those who survived had established mo mostly an imaginary relationship to something outside of Auschwitz. So their, their wife might be dead, but they were still talking to her every hour. Or they had a book they wanted to write. There was something outside. And so, but that was the crucial question. And Kennedy's Ask Not, that came from Victor Frank. Hmm. Um, so uh, what problem is there? And so Fred Swanaker said, 
leadership in Africa. Uh, and then in this essay he said, when you confront, you should reject most of the problems that yield to you. Because there are just so many problems, most of them are not your problem. It's just not the one you're right for. So how do you select? One, he said it should be a really big problem. If you're at Harvard, you've got the talents to address a really big problem. Second, it should be one your life has been uniquely designed to help you solve. And so Fred was, grew up all over Africa. His parents were educators. He helped start a school with his mom when he was 18. He decided education in Africa is what I'm uniquely from the history of my life is I'm directed toward. And so he started something called the African Leadership Academy, which is in South Africa, which has trained a generation of young leaders. And now he's starting, um, he started two new universities in Africa, and his ambition is to start about 1,000. So that's a big ambition. That's a big thing. <laughs> and, but his whole life has uniquely suited him to that. And then the third thing he said was you should care about it enough so that um, you lose sleep over it. Uh, and to me, to get to a commitment, you have to get to a false negative. I can't not do this. And if you get to that false negative, then you're, you're home free. <laughs> That's my random middle-aged pondering. <laughs> well, that is a wonderful note to end on. Thank you very much, David. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.